Well, good morning. Welcome to Jericho Ridge. My name is Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho. And I want this morning as we begin our series in Revelation to take you back in time. The year is AD 96, and things are not looking good in the rock quarries on the prison island of Patmos out in the Aegean Sea. The Roman Empire, with all of its military might and political power of the ancient world at its disposal, has sentenced an old man in his mid-80s to hard labor. The man's name is John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, and he is now condemned to chisel out hunks of limestone with the other criminals and troublemakers. He's been sent to a kind of ancient Alcatraz, an island prison from which no one escapes. Now, New Testament scholar and pastor Daryl W. Johnson writes this, that four years earlier, in AD 92, life became very, very difficult for followers of Jesus across the Roman world. Life had been hard enough up to that time, but in AD 67, the Emperor Nero was feeding Christians to the lions in the Colosseum. The apostles Peter and Paul were crucified during that period. But in AD 92, the fire of persecution got even hotter. See, the emperor at that time was Domitian. He was a profoundly insecure man who lived in morbid horror of being overthrown. But to compensate for his insecurity, Domitian demanded that all of his subjects throughout the empire worship him as Lord and God, Domine e Deus. If you go to the modern-day nation of Turkey and in the ruins of the city of Ephesus, you can actually still see the remains of the temple of Domitian, the place where all Roman subjects were required to come and worship the emperor. See, all they had to do was go to the temple, take a pinch of incense, cast it on the altar, and pay homage to Caesar as God, saying the words, Caesar Curios, meaning Caesar is Lord. That's all. Well, for most Roman citizens, this posed no problem at all. Most were polytheists. They believe in multiple gods. So what was just an homage to one more god in the mix? They could take part in such ceremonies without troubling their conscience. But not John. The elderly disciple could not abide by the emperor's edict. Respect Caesar? Yes, Pay taxes to Caesar? Yes. Worship Caesar? No. For John, there's only one person who can demand total allegiance. And John was not about to bow his knee to a mere mortal who had dared to usurp the position only Jesus Christ has the right to occupy. So John graciously refuses to take a pinch of incense and cast it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. And he is, therefore, from the state's perspective, a troublemaker, a lawbreaker. Because worship of Caesar was the glue that held the empire together. And John's gentle refusal is, from the state's perspective, a profound threat to Roman unity. And he must be punished. Well, the authorities 
could have killed John right on the spot. We know that in AD 90, Domitian had some 40,000 Christians killed. Timothy was beaten to death during this time, but John was not killed, probably because he was too prominent of a figure, and killing John would have made him into a martyr or a hero for the early Christian movement. And so instead, the authorities arrested John and banished him to the island of Patmos. So there, as an octogenarian, he's left to rot and bleach upon the rocks. While he's on Patmos, Emperor Domitian's reign of terror intensified for the churches that John knew and loved. Churches in cities like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira, Sardis, ancient city of Philadelphia and Laodicea. As John looks out across the Aegean Sea, he can, in his mind's eye, see many Christians who are confused and discouraged and afraid. There's pressure to conform to the emperor's edict. Many Christians are being harassed by soldiers. Many are losing their businesses and homes, and some are being murdered. On top of that, heresy and immorality were gaining footholds in a number of John's congregations. And so John writes to them, and he says that as he was worshiping and praying in his spirit, or in the spirit, one Sunday morning on Patmos, God responded. Well, I have no doubt that John had been praying all along about what was going on. No doubt he'd been crying out to the Lord. But how God responded to John's situation may have surprised him and us. How does the Lord respond? He lifts the cover. He pulls back the curtain. Jesus responds to John with a vision, a revelation, and apocalypse, an unveiling of the unseen reality of the present. God responds by giving John a powerful vision of who Jesus is, an invitation to rediscover Jesus in all of his majesty and power. And this vision, written down, becomes what we know of as the New Testament book of Revelation, or more accurately titled, The Revelation of Jesus or The Revelation from Jesus. Literally, the title of the book is The Apocalypse. Now, sadly, in our day and time, the word apocalypse has a bad reputation. It's come to mean something like, oh no, something terrible is about to happen. So destructive storms like hurricanes or earthquakes or strange events in the heavens like the sun and the moon turning red or it raining are described as apocalyptic in nature. But the word apocalypse really just means an unveiling, an, an opening up, like lifting the cover when a really good meal comes out at a restaurant and the cloche unveils the steak beneath, or pulling back the curtain at a theater for a dynamic and much anticipated performance. There's this sense of eager expectancy a sense of hope. That's how people would have understood the word apocalypse in the first century. And this is how John begins his letter in Revelation. If you have your Bible or your phone, I invite you to take it out, follow along with me. Uh, there's also a Bible on the Jericho Ridge app. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, starting at Revelation chapter 1, 
verse 9 and going through to verse 11. Revelation 1 verse 9 says this, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus called us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day. I was worshiping in the spirit or in my spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice and a trumpet, like a trumpet blast. And it said, write in a book everything that you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So before we go any further, we need to keep in mind that whatever else Revelation is or is not, first and foremost, the book of Revelation is a letter. It's a letter written by a real pastor, Pastor John, to specific and real people who lived in real places at the turn of the first century who were facing very real challenges in life that John wanted to help them with. But somewhere along the way, this has been lost and forgotten. And people have twisted the book of Revelation. They made it into all kinds of weird and crazy things. But this fall uh, at Jericho Ridge, we're going to be teaching through the book of Revelation, the whole book, not just the letters to the churches. And I think we'll see there's two major challenges <clears throat> or problems that we need to identify and avoid as we begin this journey together. So the first major problem that can set in is that we ignore or fear Revelation. We ignore or fear the book of Revelation. And I have to say that in this account, I am guilty as charged. I have been preaching for 18 years, 13 of them here at Jericho Ridge, and only now have I worked up enough pastoral courage to dig in to this book. I wonder if we're honest, maybe the reason we ignore the final book of the Bible is that we've come to believe that it's so highly symbolic that it's impossible for us to understand it. So, for example, when we come to it in our Project 345 Bible reading plan each December, I don't know about you, but sometimes I abandon ship for the Christmas stories. We have to realize that, yes, the book of Revelation is infused with highly symbolic imagery, and numbers. And yes, they're figurative, but that does not mean that it's impossible for us to understand. We might have to work harder at it than we do in other sections of the Bible, but it's not a lock whose key has been lost. And as I've been reading and praying and preparing this series, I'm becoming convinced that the major reason that we have difficulty understanding the symbolism in the book of Revelation is that we're just not as well steeped in the whole of the biblical story. See, Revelation is infused through and through with pictures and images and allusions from the Old Testament. Of the 404 verses in Revelation, 278 of them allude to the Old Testament. And there's over 500 quotations or word pictures drawn directly from other parts of the Bible. And often these come from parts of the Old Testament that don't get a lot of foot traffic. Places like Joel 
or Amos, Ezekiel, Zechariah, or the weird parts of the book of Daniel and Ezekiel. So yes, Revelation is highly symbolic, but I want to say again, it is not impossible for us to understand. Remember, this is a letter. And how do you read a letter to someone? If you get letters from anyone these days, you generally read it in one sitting, end to end. You don't take out a sentence or a part and make a big deal about it if the author didn't intend you to do that. So you generally read it as a letter. So maybe we need to just put aside the complicated charts and past sermons and college courses and films that all claim to unravel deep mysteries in the book and just read the darn book. In some ways, I'm going to suggest, kids, you actually may have an advantage over us adults here. Because sometimes as adults, we approach it with our preconceived theological systems like dispensationalism or premillennialism or superlapsarianism or whatever isms that we bring to the table from our own history. And the beauty of an approach of reminding ourselves that Revelation is a letter is that after letting the whole of it wash over them, a child might say something like, if you ask them, what did you get out of that book? They might say something like, well, parts of it were very hard to understand, but I'm glad that in the end, the lamb won over that awful beast. And you know, if that's what they took from the book of Revelation, <laughs> I think they might have actually truly heard and taken to heart the message. But we, as adults, we tend to overcomplicate things, don't we? Because we're so sophisticated and smart. We know John is writing from prison, and he's going to write a scathing critique of empire and an absolute denunciation of unjust economics that favor the powerful and oppress those on the margins. And so because he's writing from prison, in order to get his letter out, he's going to have to get it past the prison censors. The prison warden's going to be reading his mail to see if he's bad-mouthing the emperor. And so he writes with these elaborate word pictures from the Old Testament that his readers would understand, but the warden or a Roman citizen might not get. And yes, that's all true. But in the end, we just need to ask, what is the message of the book of Revelation? And in the end, the message is the Lamb, who is Jesus, wins against all of the forces of evil, and that's not so difficult to understand, is it? So gang, I want to encourage us. We can do this. Like understanding revelation is possible if we put some work into it. And on top of that, look at chapter 1, verse 3. This is the only book of the Bible that says there's a unique promise of blessing for those who listen to its message and who obey what it says. Revelation 1, 3 says God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. And he blesses all of those who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. So if the first problem in approaching the book is we think Revelation is impossible to understand and so we fear it or we avoid it, the second problem is actually just as dangerous and that is people who want to timeline it. Let me just say this. You will misunderstand Revelation if you treat it as a book 
of predictions. You will misunderstand Revelation if you treat it as nothing more than a book of predictions. Some people approach this part of the Bible on the hunt for very specific ideas about very specific future events. They're looking for a kind of hyper-mapped out sequence of what is to come. And to an extent, I understand this confusion because of the way that we use the term prophecy. In our modern minds, the word prophecy and the word prediction are almost interchangeable. And so when Revelation 1.3 says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy, for the time is near, our brains immediately go to, ah, Revelation is going to map out the future for me. Awesome. But most often, when the Bible speaks about prophecy, you'll remember from our spiritual gift series, it isn't so much speaking about prediction as it is about declaration. Not so much about foretelling as it is about forthtelling the word of God. Not a list of coming events, but this is what the Lord is saying. Now that isn't to say that God doesn't give his, some of his followers unique insight into things that are to come from time to time. But this is simply to remind us not to throw out our guidelines for biblical interpretation that we use so well for the other 65 books and just huck them out the window when it comes to the book of Revelation. In his book, Apocalypse and Allegiance, author Nelson Craybill helpfully points out this. The biblical prophecy often has more to do with spiritual insight into the writer's immediate circumstances than with forecast into the distant future. John's vision gave insight into what must soon take place in his era. You see, the seer knew nothing of global warming, the internet, or the United Nations. He wrote a scathing critique of political idolatry in the first century Roman Empire, not an analysis of Al-Qaeda or the inequities of modern globalization. So rather than starting with the expectation that Revelation will forecast events of our time, we should seek to understand the life setting of John and the believers whom he addressed in his book. And with that background, we can then listen for what the Spirit is saying to the churches about faithfulness to Jesus Christ today, end quote. In other words, Revelation is not so much a predictor of future events as it is an expose of spiritual realities that impacted them and continue to impact us right now. See, John is showing us how the world looks, not to the natural eye, but to the one who is in the spirit or seeing things through the eyes of the spirit. And John learns, or rather he sees something powerful that ought to give both his readers and us a deep sense of hope in the midst of a world seemingly gone haywire. Let's keep reading in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 12 to verse 20. John says, When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest, and his head and his hair were white 
like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire, and his feet were like polished bronze refined in the furnace. His voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. His hand held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and he said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. What you have seen, both in the things that are happening now and the things that will happen, this is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What does John see? that gives him hope in the midst of such a challenging time. He sees a vision of Jesus. See, the Son of Man is a title from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and Jesus continuously uses this of himself in the Gospels. And so we know that John is seeing and hearing Jesus. Jesus is wearing a robe like a high priest, a golden sash like a king. And John hears Jesus speaking with authority and power like mighty thundering of the ocean waves. He sees his face shining like the noonday sun in all of its brilliance for God's holiness and his majesty. And we're going to see this same kind of imagery repeated in Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation 4, John gets a glimpse into the throne room of heaven, and he hears what's being declared in the heavenly realms. And in a massive dose of irony, what is being shouted is exactly what Domitian, the Roman emperor, demanded be sung at political events. You see, historians and archaeologists have uh, uncovered what words were things that were known as to things known as imperial hymns. And these were things that the emperor would pay for big choirs to sing as he walked into any arena. And he would hire these choirs and adoring fans were supposed to shout these things back to him. Listen to the words, see if you recognize them. These are the words of the imperial hymns. They contain phrases like, you are the holy one. Salvation belongs to you. You are worthy to receive power. Righteous are your judgments, our Lord and God. Hmm. Any of those sound familiar? John knows. You and I know who truly and solely deserve such shouts of acclamation, and it isn't a pagan king or any government or leader or principality or power because worship belongs to Jesus, who alone sits on the throne because Revelation 4 reminds us that he is the one who created everything that is and he sustains everything that is. You are worthy, verse 11 says of chapter 4, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. So 
What John sees so overwhelms him that even the highest and the best language fails him as he searches for words to describe the worship gathering that he's privy to. All he can do is fall to his knees and like those worshiping around the throne in Revelation 4 verse 8 say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. So you might say, so what, Brad? Some 80-year-old political prisoner saw a vision of heaven like some 1,921 years ago. What in the world does that have to do with me? That's a fair question. We should ask, another way of asking it might be, why was John specifically instructed to write this revelation or these revelations of Jesus down? What difference did it make to his readers and what difference does it make to us? Well, remember again the personal challenges John was facing, imprisoned in his hard labor camp. Remember the challenges of those seven churches and think about some of the challenges that you and I are facing today. In the midst of some of these things, it can be hard to, it can be sometimes easy to wonder if maybe God has fallen asleep at the wheel. We look at the created order. There's hurricanes ravaging the southern United States, deadly torrential flooding in southeastern Asia, earthquakes in Central America, terrorism and war and political chaos, forest fires burning out of control. Sometimes when you look at the news, it can be easy to wonder Maybe God has let things slide and someone or something else is in control of what's going on. And this can seem true not only in a global sense, but also in our own personal lives. Family and friends can disappoint us. Business ventures, school plans don't turn out the way we imagined. Our health sometimes fails us. And it can be easy to wonder, where is God in the midst of all of this. And yet it's precisely in those moments that John's vision is most helpful to us because John gets taken up into the control room of the universe and he sees that despite the chaos and the tumultuous times and the troubles that he faces and his people faced or we faced, no matter what's happening, Jesus is still on the throne and God is still in control. Because look what Jesus does in Revelation 1 verse 17. And this is powerful because it shows us that the reigning king of the universe does not just stay aloof and disinterested in the issues and challenges that we face. In Revelation 1 17, it says that the king of the universe, Jesus, places his hand on John and he touches him and he says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid, John. I'm here. I am in control. Don't be afraid of the Nero's and the Domitians of history. Don't be afraid of sickness that can ravage your body. Don't be afraid of tenuous economics. Don't be afraid of criticism. Don't be afraid of pain. The words Jesus speaks to John, he also speaks to us. And he says, Muriel, do not be afraid. Tammy, do not be afraid. Dave, do not be afraid. 
John, do not be afraid. Elizabeth, do not be afraid. See, do not be afraid is the second most repeated phrase in the book of Revelation. And it's because Jesus knows we need to be reminded of this over and over and over again. We need to be reminded of the simple truth that in the end, the lamb wins, even though it often doesn't look like it in the midst of our circumstances. But you see, Jesus walked right into the jaws of the greatest enemy that there is. And on that cross, the enemy unleashed all of its fury on Jesus. And as one commentator says, he let death take him captive. And then he burst right out of the prison and he carried away the prison keys. And today, he longs to bring that liberty and freedom to you. You know, if you never know that level of freedom, if you've never known it in your life, today is your day, friend. As we wrap up this portion of our morning, and John and Caitlin and the team are going to come and lead us in a song that closes us of declaration, I'm going to point out two people to you, Allie Nicole and Meg Sumner. And both of these women know what it's like to face challenges and to have found hope and strength and love and peace in Jesus. And so if you want to hear their stories, ask them. They're on prayer response today, and so if you want someone to talk with you and pray with you, if you want to invite God to be part of your story, they would love to speak with you about that. Make sure you do that before you leave here today and go over for the barbecue. Maybe you're listening today and you're facing challenging times and you're wondering, does anyone care? Maybe you're losing hope. And friend, I'm here to remind you today that what John saw in his vision is still occurring today. God is still on the throne of the universe. He still deeply desires to speak into the troubled circumstances of your life. God cares, and we here at Jericho care. And I want to invite you to get to know any of the people here at Jericho who have discovered this to be true. And whether it's to 80-year-old prisoners like John or to you or I here today, Jesus still speaks hope in the midst of troubling times. Let's pray together.